Hello everybody and welcome to the Bad EM Podcast. My name is Daniel Still and I am your host. This is a podcast about idea sharing, problem solving and connecting brains in emergency medicine in South Africa and Africa at large. Bad EM is a not-for-profit started about 10 years ago by some like-minded individuals who want to find African solutions for African problems. I work in emergency medicine, as do most of our upcoming guests. But in time, we hope to diversify across departments and fields of expertise in order to share knowledge and move forward. It is not really a clinical podcast, focusing rather on the bigger picture of medicine in South Africa. So if you're studying for an exam, you're probably in the wrong place, but I do suggest listening anyway. The views expressed are purely personal and do not represent those of any institutions that myself or my guests represent. This month's guest is Almiro Oosthuizen. He works for the Directorate for Clinical Service Improvement for the Western Cape Department of Health. And his whole outlook on life and medicine and his general way of thinking was actually one of the inspirations behind starting this podcast in the first place, making him the ideal first guest for the first episode. This month, We'll be talking about health justice and what it means. We'll be talking about how to disseminate knowledge, ideas and decision making on a broader scale in South Africa. And we'll be talking about problem solving in a non-linear fashion. All right, let's get going. Almiro, please introduce yourself. So I'm uh, Almiro Westhuizen. I was born in Cape Town. I was actually born in Tigerberg Hospital, so I'm super local. Um, trained in medicine, undergrad at Stellenbosch University, spent some time overseas and all over the country, eventually came back, and then trained as a specialist emergency physician in Cape Town as well. So I've been a, a service clinician for about two decades. A decade of that um, was non-specialized, and a decade of that I was specialized. And so um, I've always been interested in trying to find useful and good ways to get stuff done. And I think that when you work in emergency medicine, which is a place where you have to problem solve on the fly, and there often isn't really a script, and and so that's kind of amplified that part of my personality, this idea of of solving problems and, and moving the game forward. And so over the last few years, I've been kind of, I don't think obsessed is the right word. I think it's an unkind word. But let's say I've, I've been very interested in a question, which is, I think, a question that many of us have, which is, why is it so difficult to solve problems um, and for those problems to stay solved? And why is it so difficult for us to realize opportunities and for those opportunities to remain alive? Um, my lived experience has certainly been, you know, you, you, you push at the world and it just oozes back into that shape that you don't really want it to be. One of the things that your directorate focuses a lot on is health justice. Tell us a bit about how you define health justice and how you can translate that into a tangible service. Health justice is just when, when everybody has access to quality, that's health justice. So when some people have access to quality, that's not justice. And when everybody has access to poor quality, that's not justice either. 
And if the cost that a person has to um, take on in order to access care, whether it's financial cost or time away from your family or time away from work or whatever that is, when that cost is prohibitive, that's also not justice. So if, if our ultimate goal is a society where health justice is there, so where everybody has access to quality, we have to ask ourselves, well, no one can eat that idea. No one, you know, that idea doesn't help someone who's having a heart attack. That it's, idea yeah, doesn't support the nutritional needs of a child. It's, it's more restricted to sort of backroom coffee chats and yeah. podcasts and things like that. It's not a tangible thing. Exactly. Yeah. And so we have to be able to transition from that idea to service. And, and to do that, we have to have an idea of what is our value proposition as a sector, as a healthcare sector. And I say that specifically not just as a Department of Health, because the Department of Health is part of the broader healthcare sector that includes public entities, private entities, NGOs, NPOs, funder-supported organizations, and just civic society. So the purpose of the healthcare sector is to serve the health and wellness needs of people. Yeah, that's our constitutional mandate, and it's our moral imperative. But even that, you know, serving the health and wellness needs of people is one step closer to something tangible from health justice. But it, you, 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 it's still not specific enough. And so we have to ask ourselves: What is our value proposition? What's our product as a sector? And I think that the, the, our product, our value proposition that we deliver into the world are service events. You know, it's an event where the need of a person is met. Yeah. And so if you're, if you're in retail, then your value proposition is the service event where a customer buys one of your products. Um, if you're in, and you can take that analogy to everything else, but I think that for us, these events, let's say health and wellness service events, that is how our intent to be of use to the world kisses or touches reality. Mm. Um, until our ideology and our value proposition, definition, everything, until that has translated into a service event, it has no value. It must translate into a service event. So just to, just to touch on that while we're talking about the, meeting the needs of the, of the person seeking healthcare. At the moment, I get the feeling, and I'm sure a lot of the people listening get the feeling, that a lot of people are waiting in the wrong place at the wrong time for the wrong service. How do we sort of reduce the inefficiency of a system that is providing the wrong care to the wrong people at the wrong time? For example, ambulances waiting outside the emergency unit. Those people should be in the emergency unit. The people in the waiting room should be in the emergency unit. Mm. There are people in the emergency unit who should be in the ward. There are people in the ward who should be in rehabilitation centers and step-down facilities and palliative care-orientated um, sort of treatment facilities. Mm. How, how do we sort of start thinking about rotating that and sort of twisting the dial to make to make it easier for people to get the appropriate care that they need because I feel like there's a lot of inappropriate care for people that are that have no choice of where to go but are just forced into a system where they're in the wrong mm. place. 
Um, uh, the short answer is I don't know. Yeah. And whatever we're doing now isn't working. Yeah. And that isn't unique to us. No, it's a, world, is a worldwide it's issue. It's a worldwide yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. And if it is a worldwide phenomenon, that should tell us something, yeah. shouldn't it? We're not going to get it right by just doing what we're doing now hard. Mm. I think that we do need to engage at a more fundamental level with some of our assumptions. And I guess even some of the philosophy or the, but some of the thinking under how we organize services. I'm going to tell you what I, what I mean by that. Is that, again, we, we mentioned earlier that a person's health journey whether I'm injured or whether I need preventative treatment or whether I become ill or whatever else, that is a single cohesive thing from my perspective uh, as the customer. The system is fractured into logistical brackets. So primary care facilities, secondary care facilities, tertiary care facilities, bundles of care and budgets at certain places. What kind of staff can you have here? What kind of staff can you have there? What's the budget allocation for this type of bed in that kind of place in that but those things, all of those decisions are logistical decisions that yeah. relate to the logistical and practical elements of service delivery and don't relate to the actual needs and requirements of patients necessarily. Yeah. And it's not good or bad. It's just a thing. It's just how it's been done and how it's it's just how it's it will be done. done for the foreseeable future. So I guess one one potential strategy or approach that we could take is to say, if we were to look at our service offerings from what a person needs as a cohesive single experience and then rejig the components around that. Around the patient. So that would be in line with the patient-centeredness and health justice. Yeah. But, so what would the system then look like? Does it, does it mean, for instance, I don't, so these are just, again, my own personal musings. These certainly yeah. are not the, the policy position of the, of, yes, the, yeah. of the department. But, you know, I think something that my dad taught me, who's a very wise man, is that you have to be able to think as wide as possible because there's no consequences in your head for, you know, downside consequences for exploring ideas. No. And so, so should we say, well, one manifestation of that might be is a patient can't know. I don't even understand and fully know the complexities of our care system. It's no. an almost unimaginably complicated set of moving parts. How, how do we expect the patient to know that? Especially in their third language. Mm. Or maybe two weeks after moving to the province from somewhere else. Yeah. And while they're sick or injured and afraid or scared. And they, how? How? It's impossible. And so that person's going to go to whatever is available. What is, what is the closest thing? Yeah. And so if I'm grabbing my chest and I'm passing out and my wife is there and we're all stressed and she bundles me in the car, she doesn't know where the cardiac assigned centers are or whether the centers, she's going to go to the, to the place and then she meets or she hits this fractured logistical environment. And now... And somebody shouts at her for coming to the wrong place. Maybe they do, maybe yeah. they don't, but often they unfortunately do. And then also, the, 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 I guess the, 
the effort burden and the expertise burden of now navigating this person's need within this fragmented environment is a job description in and of itself. Yeah. And it, it takes about as much time and effort and knowledge as the clinical care. Of course, yeah. I, I think I could have a full-time job managing patients' expectations and managing the waiting room and fielding questions. A hundred percent. And that, and that, for me, is more often when the sort of negative components of that, of fielding questions and managing families and managing sort of frustrated and tired people, that is much more burdensome than the actual clinical work. Oh, much more. hundred um, percent, yeah. And, and it, it actually contributes. So if the, the majority of, the satisfaction and our happiness and frustration and complaints and stuff that emerge in our system are not necessarily related to the technical components of care. It's about the yeah. care experience. Yes. Yeah. And so maybe, so to, to answer that, maybe one sort of conceptual, well, should we actually consolidate all of our healthcare facilities and services in one or two mega facilities? So let's say in the metro, we have like a mega health campus towards the Tigerberg east. Tigerberg and And one mega example. health campus somewhere else. And so then we invest effort, time and money in the connecting architecture, i.e. Um, loops of transport, rapid transport access, teleconsultations and whatever else. But it means now that as a person with an illness experience, there's only one place that I need to go and everything is in that physical location. I might yeah. need to move from one place to another place in that physical location, but everything will always be there. And we all know, we also all know that getting a service that is in a different location physically, it's such a huge barrier to yeah. that service. Even if it's like Carl Bremer and Tigerberg, for example, you can see each other yeah. from the window. Yeah. But that is, in reality, that's a, sometimes a 10-hour journey yeah. and a lot of frustrated phone calls 100%. away. And so geography becomes destiny. Yes. The, the, so, there, so now that doesn't necessarily mean that that is a solution because it might just create a whole different set of challenges now. Because yeah. remember, we, we would love for and that's people... that's also location-based. Exactly. Yeah. So we would love for people to be able to access the things that they need with as little as possible, all domain cost and disruption to their life. So what do I mean yeah. by that? The, I don't want people to have to take time away from family, time away from work, time away from education, time away from opportunity, um, money away from transport. But there's, there are all these things. And, and so the idea of having a facility in a community might be able to cut across many of those challenges. I guess that, so we would say that if we're going to do a mega campus model, where we say everything you need is in one place, then that can only work if we put in the real effort into building the connecting architecture. So at the moment, in a way, we're assuming that if we put a facility in a community, then the physical proximity to the people of that community takes care of the connecting architecture. It means it's easy for them to get for there, them to get there, which yeah. it often isn't. It's an assumption that isn't yeah. always true. But if we are saying that we're going to have these mega campuses, just conceptual again, this is not policy, it's just us thinking and talking through it, then we have to make sure that the connecting architecture is as well considered in the design. Could we, for instance, have never-ending perpetual loops of transport 
running through our community. Like a bus service. Exactly. So if you think about so many places... Like a health, health-orientated bus service. Yeah, not, not saying we call you when it's needed. Yeah. It's always running. And so you know every 60 minutes at this physical location, you can just jump into a thing. For free. For free. And it'll take you to the healthcare facility. But you if need the, to be going to the healthcare. You can't be going to your uncle. You can't road. be going to your uncle. So the loops are yeah. specific. Yeah. And... Now that opens up some interesting ideas. What value adds might you be able to add on that bus in addition to transport? So or you can maybe, get people home. Exactly. That would be amazing. Maybe you can provide certain kinds of services on that bus. Yeah, educational services, even pri- healthcare prim- services. Primary healthcare Could services. there be a mobile clinic in the back of that thing? So yeah. now I'm getting on the bus, and actually by the time I get to the next bus stop, my health need has already been met. And you ride the loop home. And I'm back home. So I think, so so that's really just, so so that would be one idea is to say, let's centralize the logistic elements yes. so that so that the, the care components are as cohesively located as the person's lived experience of their illness. We know there will be significant downside, potential downsides to this, like what about routine things? What about just health promotive activities and so on and so forth? Um, and we know that you'll have to take real good care of the connecting architecture. So it, it can't be a, uh, like a health campus in isolation. But there's another thing that we could say. We might say, okay, sh- maybe we should just totally scrap the idea of levels of care. Primary, secondary, tertiary. This is an idea I've been thinking a lot, uh, a lot about lately mm. um, because in the South African context based based on location and based on geography and ba- and especially in different provinces and more rural regions the whole sort of idea that primary patients present to primary facilities and Nonsense. emergencies present to secondary facilities and people needing specialist care present to tertiary facilities it's just completely unrealistic It's not just unrealistic. I think it's a dangerous assumption. It's a hugely dangerous assumption. And also, so one of my ideas was, why don't we just make a complete divide between acute care and non-acute care? So if you say, okay, because in reality, someone presenting to Google to CHC, an under-resourced clinic, which is a 24-hour emergency unit in one of the most violent areas in the country, and so, and they probably see more acutely unwell, like emergency cases, than a lot of secondary hospitals oh, yes. in the same, in in the Western Cape yes. and in the rest of South Africa. Why don't we make it? You get bigger, more sort of resourced emergency units where all acute care patients go. So basically, all non scheduled care goes if they want to, and there's no more. You should be deferred to your clinic. You should be deferred elsewhere or whatever. Um, and, but you can be seen very quickly and deferred to appropriate care or you can get a booking made for a non-urgent, a non-acute setting. Mm. So we, we get access to um, Retreat Clinic's booking website mm. and either they can go to reception at Retreat and book a clinic date or we can do that ourselves by recognizing a non-urgent situation and say, actually, you don't need to be here right now. Without going too much into your detail, I'm going to book you for Tuesday at 3 o'clock. We can certainly do... So, so, so that would certainly be a model that we could consider. I think 
the like with the previous one, the health campus connecting architecture model, yeah. the the acute, let's say the scheduled versus unscheduled care model ha- will have upsides and downsides. Yes. Yeah. And time. so one of the downsides will be is we're assume we're not we're not still actually assuming a pretty high level of um, ability of the patient to decide where and what is necessary. Yes. And so what we're saying is that there's going to be a door in a building. This door is always open to anybody. Yeah. You're going to walk into that door and then either you're going to be told that this is not actually an acute or emergent need. Yeah. First problem, because yeah. it's about what they perceive to be not what yeah. necessarily. Yeah, exactly. And then if it is an acute or emergent need, then we're going to provide that care here. And if it isn't, then we're going to link you to care. From a user perspective, imagine for yourself now. Um, if we if we just like look very much sort of um, customer centered, user centered. So now you're a single mom, or uh, no, you know, that's too cliche. You're a you're a single dad. Yeah. And you're working hard all day, and you are really hustling to provide for your kids. And now you know work ends at five. And you have to get home, but you can't not go to work because we know what the job market is like. Now, you have a health need, but it's not necessarily an emergency. It's just something that needs to be sorted out. So let's yeah. say you, you keep on having these weird tummy pains and, and actually your grandfather had stomach cancer and you're and starting to really worry about that. You don't know. Yeah. And, and you, you, you know, you're a smart guy. You know that you should sort this out early. But yeah. the logistics of your life doesn't sync with the logistics of our system. As, and so now it, what are you going to do? Does even for, even for non-single dads. Exactly. Like I work a job. I, I work a job and I like running. I yeah. still don't have time to go for a screening. Exactly. Primary like healthcare consult. I've got the same problems. So now that dude, yeah. is going to come to the facility maybe at 9 o'clock at night after work once he's put his kids down and someone's helping with the kids. Because like he's it's hustling, the, man. He's trying time. to do his best. Yeah, and he's, now, probably, and he's probably not going to sleep that night and go to no, work the next day, exactly. and he knows that already. And now he gets there, and then they tell him, well, no, it's not an emergency. We're going to link you to care at a different time and place. Yeah. How does that fit into that person's life? Not well. Not well. And yeah. so, again... We might not be able to solve for all of these jobs that exist yeah. in people's lives, but I think, I think, for for each of these things. So now, so now, let's say, like in the first model where we have the health campus slash connecting yeah. architecture model, in the second one we have the acute and the non-acute care model. What we'll have to be able to compensate for are patients' or people's logistical needs and responsive linkages to care. Yeah. Because um, if people are accessing, a lot of the people that access so-called emergency centers or emergency services for non-emergent things do that because it's the only logistical option that they have. And they might have sat at a clinic and for, two days. for two days or um, or even they, they're coming there because they know they, if regardless if they wait there for 12 hours, they will see a doctor and they'll get it sorted and they will probably get us get it sorted even if that means an outpatient date at a later stage or a ct scan or whatever mm-hmm. in two months time they know that by accessing an emergency care with a non-urgent problem they're happy to wait 
but they know they want to get it sorted because exactly. they've just put their kid to sleep and they pre- and they prepared to sleep the whole night there. Because it, and I think a lot of that is also, it's about what what is what is a value for the customer. Yeah, and I think that we can be very um, uh, patriarchal or prescriptive in terms of how we want people to what what we think they should value. Yeah. You know, a good example of that would be is that this falsely dichotomous idea that people are either super rich and they have full medical aid, so they go to, to, to private hospitals for everything, or they're destitute and dependent on the state for care, which is just, it's just false. Yeah. There are so, there's a so wide between, variety yeah. of things in between, and people value different things. And so for me, for instance, because time is tight, you know, I've got kids and I've got work responsibilities and my wife works and... Time becomes an incredibly precious commodity for me. So even if I was making 80% less money than me, than I'm making at the moment, you know, if you told me, listen, here are your two options. Take a day or two out of work. Go sit in a place for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours to see someone that you don't know they'll be able to short you out. And then at the end of that, they'll give you an appointment to come back on another day. Then it's going to be free. That's option number one. Option number two, actually, for a consultation fee of 500 rands and an administration fee of 50 rand, we can have a teleconsultation with you just to have an idea of what the problem is. That's going to help yeah. us directly. And then we're going to, somewhere on that, in that teleconsultation, start setting up the basics and we're going to make a timed, dated, spaced appointment for you to go to the right person. So it's going to cost you some money. But, you know, your, your, your all domain disruption cost to your life is going to be way less. Which one would you choose? I'll oh, choose the same. Of I'm course sure. we would. Even, and so, even if it was a, a large portion of even if it was a salary. Lot. Exactly. Yeah. And so when we, when we, there's this idea around value discovery. As a system, we need to, in a, in a very mindful and deliberate way, discover and have a better idea of what it is that our customers, i.e. people, value. Yeah. So that we can incorporate that in our designs. Yeah. Because at the moment, really, all we're incorporating in design is, is, is acuity, per- so triage is yeah. the one thing, and logistics. And also our perceived value that we are providing for them. Exactly. Yeah. So if we, if we say, you know, health justice is access to quality for everybody, then, then we, we need to understand what people need to be able to access our services. So we can make some assumptions around what potential barriers of access to care would be. And I'm not trying to say that we're going to... So this is the narrative here is not that the government is the big troglodyte sitting around making stupid assumptions. We're doing wonderful work mm. in terms of you know, research-based things and all sorts of other things to discover these ideas. I just think that we can go a little bit further yeah. in terms of, in addition to the really good quality systems work that is being done, to also do some value discovery at a more granular and a richer, at a human experience level to figure out what people experience as barriers to access or what they would need to be able to access and then to incorporate that practically in our service design. Same with quality. What do people perceive as quality? So, you know, so quality is a subjective thing. Quality is, well, my needs are met. Mm. Um, and so 
again, we really want, we're very, very good actually at knowing, um, at understanding like standards of care and levels of care and, and audit and like outcome metrics and things like that. But in addition to that, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a better idea of how our people think about quality? Yeah. And it's interesting, there are some really sort of um, apocryphal is the wrong word. There are some like almost legendary um, examples of what happens when you do work like this. For instance, what is the, um, if you look at patient experience at a primary care level, the research shows us that there's one thing that is almost universally appreciated at as at the top or, or near the top of a driver as I'd rather go to that place than to that place. What do you think that is? Probably people being friendly to you. Clean toilets. <laughs> yeah, clean toilets. When's the last time you saw a clean patient toilet? Well, actually, I yeah. did yesterday. We're, we're getting better at it. But, <laughs> but it's not always the case. Yeah. Um, and so if we understand it, then how do we now go from that interesting discovery that clean toilets are actually really important to people and it's important to me. Yeah. How do we convert that into actual concrete design? Well, do we consolidate do we do we have larger toilet complexes? Do we have auto cleaning toilets? Do we have more cleaners? Do we use yeah. what but you can't go you, once you know that, you have to you have something. to do something yeah. about it. So yeah. for something you to can't be just, you done, can't just look at the stats. And, exactly. And for something to be done, it must be done. Yeah. And so again, in terms of quality, now in addition to all the wonderful work that we know that it's already happening in terms of patient experiences and trying to be responsive in terms of time needs and you know how friendly you are when you talk yeah. to someone, just how do we now incorporate things that people actually profoundly value like yeah. clean toilets, short waiting times, comfortable seating that isn't broken, um, magazines or something to distract me, privacy when I'm being seen by a doctor. All of these things play into quality in addition to the technical. But I, I would say that after having worked in private, in the private healthcare system and in public myself, I would, and spoken to a lot of people, the biggest perceptions of quality and from a lay perspective from somebody who is not necessarily aware of the actual quality of the medical treatment that they're getting or the expertise or the experience of the doctor that they're seeing or the or the necessity of the investigations that they're getting um, people in South Africa will generally say that private healthcare is wonderful and it's first world and government and government healthcare is really shocking and I think the biggest things that are impacting that perception are, like you said, the time waiting to be seen, the cleanliness of the floor, the cleanliness of the toilet, the friendliness of the nurses. They get a glass of orange juice while they wait. They sit in a more private space when they're seeing a doctor. And they probably are seeing the same doctor. Well, not the same doctor, the same level of experience of doctor. Yeah. But they... People, the general public, with very with a very understandable reason, will perceive one healthcare system as wonderful and one healthcare system as very poor. Exactly, because for, for all the reasons that we've just spoken about now, which is because quality is more than just the technical components of the 
correctness of your care. Yes. It's about how you were cared for. Yes. And so, you know, the as an example, you can have someone receiving like world-class technical care, for instance, in a public sector setting where things are noisy and dirty and blah, 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 and they will say after the fact, oh, that was terrible. Yeah. Which is... They, they could have said that they could have just had a free consult from the best neurologist in the world. Yeah, and which, they, which is literally things that happen. Like yes, this yeah. morning I was involved in, in a conversation around using digital presence robotics to bring top, top, like internationally rated critical care specialists virtually to the bedside yeah. of patients that are critically ill in our rural areas. Yeah. I mean, and, but if, if the if, if you waited long and people are rude to you and stuff, that that doesn't matter exactly. Yeah. And we're not saying that we should compromise on the technical quality of care. We're saying what a wonderful opportunity to, to be pick, more responsive to the health and wellness needs of people. To pick a lot of low hanging fruit. Exactly. It's a lot. It's a lot more difficult to arrange an intensivist from wherever to do a virtual consult than it is to hire another cleaner. Exactly. Yeah. And then you could, um, you know, the, 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 in my family, and I'm sure that all of us, but let's say conceptually, you can also have this experience that you can be in a private facility where the technical components of your care is actually maybe not great. Let's, yeah, it's not um, university, but we're just talking about examples. So yeah. you can be in a public setting where you can have wonderful technical care and the rest of the components are horrible and your quality perception will be that was horrible. Yeah. You can be in a private care setting where the technical components of your care is not great, but the other components is great and your perception of quality will be that's wonderful. Yeah. And so neither one of those two extremes is it's useful. Yeah. The idea is that if we value people, then we need to be, move beyond lip service. Yeah. And we need to ask to ourselves, once we understand what people value in addition to their technical requirements, in addition to the logistical realities. So how do we add more, more, more richness of things that we can base our designs on? Yeah. And so whether that's a health campus model or whether it's what we're doing now or whether that's an acute and a non-acute care thing or whether it is, for instance, saying, well, maybe we actually really just need two tiers of care. Things that are open 24 hours a day. And things that are not. And things that are not. And if you're open 24 hours a day, you should be able to provide all care. Yeah. And if you're not, then we can have time limit. You know, then we can have sort of bundles of care. That, that, again, like the other models, has its own pros and cons. Whichever place we go to, doing more of what we're doing now, making a real radical change like a health campus model or something in between like the 24 versus non-24 or the acute versus non-acute or whatever, we don't, we don't know yet. None of us can say with certainty what the best What's response is. Yeah. But what we can say is that unless we incorporate practically, not ideologically, practically, what people need and value, unless we do true value discovery and include that in the technical design of our services, it's extremely unlikely that whatever future iteration we put into the world will be useful. Extremely yeah. unlikely. Um, on that, on basically a practically 
doing things that um, based on research and based on what we know exists and what we know is adding value. Um, could you elaborate on some of the things that CSI is actually doing at the moment? Yeah, that's that's a that's also a tough question. <laughs> so, so so it's not an or, or, impossible question. It's it's an put it this put it this way: uh, things that you're working on and some of the models that you've run yeah, that we've yeah. spoken before about um, things that you've looked into and ways that we can basically save a lot of time and money for a lot of people and, and add quality at the same yeah. time. Yeah. So I definitely will, and to to inform that. Um, I just want to expand a little bit on what, what a service event is for us. Yeah. Remember we said earlier that we have this ideology of health justice. Then we have a mandate statement, which is our, it's, you know, to serve the health and wellness needs of people and that our product or our value proposition are these service events, these health and wellness service events. But what, it, what a health and wellness service event can be uh, unpacked just a little bit further. So that each of these service events, there are three things there. There are the people and the communities that we serve. Then there are the servants and services that serve them. Yeah. And then there is the enabling environment that makes this possible. Yeah. So by this definition, a health promotions officer doing a sexual and reproductive health talk in a school is a health and wellness service event. Yes. And a... Um, cardiothoracic surgeon doing a pediatric heart transplant in Red Cross is a health and wellness service event. Yeah. And so our product or, or these service events have different natures, but ultimately we need to improve quality and or quantity. So when we're thinking about service events, we're thinking, well, we need more and better of these events in the world, but also, and this is absolutely critical we insist on balanced value and design of all three components and that indulge me for a minute or two just as i unpack that all three of these components are equally valuable and necessary for the product to be useful to to people yeah and i'm going to use purposefully provocative language now um so for people listening just push through it'll make sense i promise you if we take one of these three domains in isolation, bad things happen. So, for instance, this is the provocative bit, isolated patient-centeredness is an extremely dangerous, toxic, and non-productive way of thinking about care. Isolated patient-centeredness. Because if we value the humanness of the patient more than the humanness of the servant, then we will consume the servant in our attempt to provide care to the patient. And that is something that health systems all over the world are currently struggling with. It was accelerated with COVID, but we know high pressure, high service volume, service models like emergency centers, labor wards, theaters, acute psychiatric units, and related service models are losing staff and struggling to retain or, or to attract staff back at rates that are highly alarming if you look at it. And non-sustainable. It's not sustainable. 
for 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 the system and for the per, and for the person. Exactly. Yeah. Because remember, we said that our ideology, our mandate. You can't help someone with that. People are helped through the hands of servants and services. And if we consume and alienate and push away and break our service personnel and our services, then one day the ideology will get out of bed and it will have no hands. Yeah. And you it will be able to can, do nothing. You can talk as much as you want. Exactly. If, there's no one, if there's no one on the ground doing anything. Exactly. Then. So it is critically important not only to value, discover, and needs discover on the patients and community side, but to also value discover and needs discover on the servant and services side. Because if you don't, then you will build services and service models that are fundamentally harmful, dangerous, and unsustainable. And it's like going bankrupt. You know, they say you, when you go bankrupt, you go bankrupt slowly, slowly and then it happens quickly. fast. Yeah. And it's the same thing. If you, if you push your people... You don't take care of them. It'll slowly wither and, and then, fade. And then, and then all of a sudden fast. then everything collapses. And, and then you can't get back. Yeah. And so isolated patient-centeredness is not healthy or useful for the patient or the system. Um, so you have to be human-centered, I guess, or, or person-centered if you want to, but more than just lip service to that, mm -hmm. yes? So you have, to you have to incorporate the needs and values of service. But even that isn't enough. It doesn't go far enough. Because if you don't build the performance-enabling environments in which this relational transaction of help, of service can happen, well, then you've got a problem. For example, if we go up to our landscaper person, if that person comes and you tell them, okay, well, the thing is, you can have access to my yard for two hours a day. Um, oh, by the way, you're not allowed to make any noise um, and you're not allowed to use any supplier for any of your things inside the province. Then here's an approved tender list yeah. of people that you have to go to. Um, and you, I know that you kind of want two spades and a fork, but you're only really allowed to use a spoon. Yeah. That's what it looks like when you build performance disabling environments. And so now it doesn't matter how good that person is. Yeah, they can... It doesn't matter how virtuous their mission is. If they're, if they're swimming against the syrup, this yeah. tight, oily thing, um, now you get someone that, that maybe would have had the potential to add 10 out of 10 value into the world over a lifetime career. But you put a person like that in a performance disabling environment like that, and they'll add two to three value, and after 10 years, they're so burnt out that you'll lose them to yeah. other countries, other yeah. sectors, or other things forever. Yeah. And when, when you go look at it, and this is something we all need to, regardless of who's listening to this, so whether you're in the built environment or whether you're in agriculture or whether you're in healthcare, and if you're in healthcare, whether you're in private, it doesn't really matter. Look at your successes in your sector over the last 10 years and ask yourself, was this because of the system or in spite of the system? And a, and a part of the reason why I am, why I feel so privileged and excited to be part of what we're doing at the moment is certainly for me, for most of my career, success has happened in spite of the system. Most of our innovations and successes, not most, many of our innovations and successes are actually just workarounds to system disablers 
and should never have been necessary in the first place. Yeah. Imagine if we said, well, we're not going to be isolated patient-centered. We're also not going to be just human-centered. We have to build performance-enabling environments. In other words, we are going to be service-centered. Once you're service-centered, you cannot be service-centered without being patient and community-centered and staff and services-centered and enabling environment and system center. You must have all of those three things to be service center. And to get the quality and the time out of your people that you've invested so much in. So that you can have happier clinicians providing yeah. better services to more people, which yeah. is health justice. And so imagine if, you know, I said earlier that I've been a, a, a service clinician and I continue to be, but I've been a full-time service clinician for two decades. If I could spend the next two decades of my life and career and I can make sure that the next generation of patients, communities and staff are in a more performance enabling environment as they attempt to just do good. Solve a much bigger problem. That'll be, that'll be worth my life, man. That's yeah. the kind of service that I'm interested in. Yeah. Imagine yeah. if we could add, if, if, we, if we have a thousand clinicians of all categories, darkness, if we have a thousand clinicians that at the moment are delivering only 30% of their potential for 30% of the potential time that they could have done it. And if, if we could move that dial up to just 60 and 60, yeah, you know, are you have to have someone that's better at math because now it's a, a two-dimensional problem. But if you think about the square, square meters, of value that you're adding in, <laughs> yeah. And, and so I'll give you a concrete example because you asked about what kind of things are we, are we doing and it relates exactly to this. And so if you're like me and you're listening to this, then you've probably at some other point in your life said something like the following. If only I could be doing what I should be doing rather than all of this other inter brackets here, mm. imagine what I could have been, imagine what I could have been achieving. Um, it's an it's a near universal human experience, mm. regardless of what sector you're in. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, when I was still full time clinical and just sort of hustling, remember I mentioned earlier that I was starting to think in a little bit less of a linear way. I started asking um, questions around this and exploring the world, and I realized, well, clinicians of all categories lack administrative support, and so. Then we, we, we looked at high quality international research. We looked at in vivo lived experience things in our own environment. We did value discovery. We did, we did quality and needs discovery. And what we realized is, well, there is administrative support that exists in our system, but we don't have clinician facing administrative support. So these administrative support assets, remember people aren't resources, you consume resources, people are assets, you wield people. These administrative assets, it's a ward clerk or it's a supply chain clerk or it's a finance clerk. They're not orientated to the clinical team in a consistent way over time so that you can build value over time. Um, and you could then say, well, just think about your day, my day, anybody's day. On any given day at work, you're kind of doing three categories of work for a clinician now. So you're doing valuable clinical work, helping people. You're doing valuable governance work. So these are things like audit, 
teaching, training, research, the kind of stuff that improves quality and moves the game forward. And then there's a whole segment of less value adding work. I want to be very, very, very upfront and very clear about this. We are not talking about work that is inherently non-valuable. We're talking about work that's less value adding relative to the intent of this person, in this case, a clinician. Their job description. Yeah. For example, having clean toilets, like we've just said, is an extremely valuable thing for a healthcare facility. It is not appropriate for the... doctors to go and have to clean the toilet. Never mind the doctor. It's not appropriate for the head of nursing, for instance, to go and do that. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's a non-value adding activity to the organization or to our endeavor. It just means that if the head of nursing is spending, if the head of nursing is spending 20 hours a week mopping the loos, that's a problem. And so in a, when we went to go and then did some actual work on this less value adding work, then we, we've now got many like, 100, 200 plus, you know, sort of data points on this. And about 95% of all clinicians we've ever investigated around this will be, will um, agree or strongly agree with the statement, which, and the statement is, I engage in less value adding work. But if you actually go and measure it, then a hundred percent of them do. Yeah. What, what is less value adding work is manually entering metrics data into registers when automated solutions already exist. Um, running up and down. Communi- like uh, overtime forms. Overtime forms, report writing, meeting yeah. minister, whatever, just administrative support. And so, we want to, what, what would happen if we actually provide clinician-facing administrative support? I remember clinician-facing administrative support is just an idea. It means that the administrative asset reports to the clinical team and builds team with them over time. And so we found examples in our system where people had already done this, for instance, at Mitchell's Plain Hospital, Lotus River, in the Cape Winers district, where people have been using multiple different kinds of mechanisms to provide this. And based on that, we designed a phase one experiment that we executed at Carl Bremer over the last 12 months, where we took a medical secretary intern, that is, it's an N6 qualification. They've done 18 months of theory, so they're fit for purpose. They need um, 18 months of placement to get the qualification. And they're looking for a high quality placement partner. So we became a placement partner. Um, I'll show you the actual numbers itself. It's absolutely staggering. Absolutely staggering. So we had an 85% plus positive deviance in all metrics um, within two to four weeks of placement. Within two to four weeks. And at six and eight months follow-up, that benefit was continuing to grow month on month. So it hadn't plateaued or slacked off. For a stipend cost of less than 6,000 rands a month, we freed up, guess how, if we convert to, we freed up about 100,000 rands of clinician time for the cost of 6,000 rands as a stipend. And that's that's hours saved doing value-added work, value-adding work. 
And remember, this is this this cost calculation is only about the time and the money saved. It doesn't tell you yet about what value was then generated with that free time that was opened up. Yeah. For instance, they were able to add an entire additional doctor equivalent to their service roster, which meant their OPD started finishing on time for the first time in years. Yeah. Which meant that their um, and then from this value-adding governance work, all of a sudden, because there was less, let's call it junk work or less replaceable, less value-adding work in, the, in their kitty, they were now able to engage not just with value-adding clinical work, which means they now have, they doubled the number of consultant-led um, ward rounds, so better yeah. decision-making, better skills transfer. They quadrupled the amount of physical time of specialists in OPDs. Again, better skills transfer, better decision-making, you know. But they also were able to significantly increase their value-adding governance quality. So they became indicator compliant. They became they started running QI projects that they just haven't been able to get to. Um, they started running in-person teaching and training and sims again that they haven't been able to get to. They started doing physical outreach to clinics that they haven't been able to do in years. And then, I mean, I can tell you stories about that. But effectively, what we were able to show is that when you provide, so what we were able to show from existing research, explorations in our world, and then a controlled prospective experiment to test this, is that when you provide clinician-facing administrative support clinical teams, their clinical performance in terms of quality and volume increases, their governance performance in terms of volume and quality increases, that this is done at a dramatically reduced cost to what it would have been if you had to buy enough clinicians in to compensate for that. And interestingly, coming back to what servants and services value, um, pre the intervention in this and now in other iteration, about, again, 90%, 90 plus percent of people will agree or strongly agree with the statement that Times and effort spent on less value adding work and the lost opportunities related to that contributes to my job dissatisfaction and frustration and reduces my wellness. Yeah. And in the phase one experiments, we were able to flip that around the center point within four weeks. Yeah. Meaning that we went from, let's say, about 90% of people agreeing or strongly agreeing with that statement to about 90% of people disagreeing or strongly disagreeing with that statement within a month. And so now we can say that. When you, in, in an environment where clinician time is such a critical determinant of our ability to execute our constitutional and moral mandate, if we are bleeding out, and it's probably 20% plus, if we're bleeding out 20% plus of all available clinician time in our pool to less value-adding tasks that could be replaced at a 20th of the cost, and at the same time, not only will you then add all this clinician time, but the people that work for you now are less frustrated and happier at work. And they have the time and energy to engage in the kind of governance activities that will move the game forward. Yeah. And so the phase one experiments were successful. We started just over a month ago with 17 simultaneous parallel phase two experiments. In different Where, facilities. Different settings and facilities. So big hospitals, mid-sized hospitals, primary care, community-based, in rural and in metro, and different categories of clinicians, doctors, allied health, pharma, whatever else. And so 
if these kind of benefits remain true, then it means within potentially a few months from now, we you might be in a situation where we said that for one twentieth of the cost of a clinician, we can add 10 to 40% additional clinical time into our system with this mechanism. With clinicians that already exist and have full-time contracts in the system. Exactly. Yeah. And at the same time, there will be indirect benefits like happier, healthier clinicians yeah. that are performing better, that have more time to perform better, and that are more actively engaged in the kind of quality improvement and development activities. That's the kind of work that we do. So that is a enabling environment intervention that makes sense from a servants and services domain point of view that ultimately adds profound benefit not only in those two domains but also in the patients and communities. Okay so that ends our first part of the first episode. We decided to break it up due to this episode being a bit longer than our future planned episodes to give you a bit of a mental break. So we will see you in part two. Join us then. Bye.